speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion about expressive language development in toddlers and preschoolers with red flags for ASD. Now, today's show is actually a continuation from our last podcast, which was show number 408. So, in case you're kind of joining us right here in the middle of this series, it might be more helpful to go back and listen to that show, because today, I'm going to try as hard as I can not to repeat a lot of the same information. So there will be some terminology that you may need to go back and listen to show 408 so that you are really prepared for this show. But last time we kind of talked about informal assessment of expressive language for kids with autism and what I found to be super helpful in my practice for almost 30 years working with uh, toddlers and preschoolers again, who may have already gotten that autism diagnosis or certainly who we think that that is in, uh, we have some good indications or that we might get that diagnosis in the future. And so this, this information is so helpful for treating and just uh, those kinds of expressive language issues. Just in case you have jumped ahead to this show thinking, oh, I'm just going to listen to this and have everything I need. That's not really how language development happens, especially in autism, because autism is actually a language disorder. It's not just that things are behind and that in time a a kid's just going to catch up naturally. It doesn't work that way. There are atypical things that we see. There are things that we expect to see that we don't see. And so certainly knowing these differences in how language develops in in kids with uh, autism will help you tremendously as a parent if you are watching this or certainly as a therapist whether you are a speech language pathologist like me or uh, a teacher one of those teacher people as we call them with developmental interventionists or whatever they call early interventionists in your state or even OTs and PTs so I hope that this show will be really really helpful for you but again my my biggest Uh, caution to you is don't think you can just jump right in with these strategies with a kid with autism without looking at the whole child. And that's what this autism podcast series is about. We started at the beginning talking about things like social interaction and joint attention and developing turn taking and certainly receptive language and play skills. And then in the last, the show before the last show, 407, we talked a lot about imitation and why imitation is so important for language development and all the things we do to get that going with children and and the strategies we're going to be talking about in today's show really are most effective with children who are already imitating pretty well. So if you're a parent and listening and you say, oh, my kid hardly ever repeats, go back and listen to show 407 because that will really teach you how to get this going. And if you're a therapist watching for specific children on your caseload, and I hope that you are, and that's that's when we make so much progress with our little guys, when we just get so engrossed in finding everything that we can to help them and help us help them, uh, it certainly makes a big, big difference. So if you've jumped ahead, Try not to do that. Go back and listen to those uh, prerequisite shows so that you are as ready as you can be to help the child that you love. All right, so let's get right into talking about six specific strategies that we're going to use to reach the goals that we'll talk about sort of in the second half of this show, but we're going to start the show talking about the most important strategies to teach parents. Now, as an early interventionist or a pediatric therapist, 
you know that not only do we help children, but even more than that, sometimes, especially if we're in state early intervention programs, our programs are based on helping parents know what they should be doing with their children. And so a lot of times that's hard for us as therapists because we've been trained how to, how to treat kids, but we haven't always been trained to teach adults how to treat kids. And so let's talk about these six strategies that can be so helpful and they are pretty universal you may know them by different names and that's okay when you listen to the explanations i'm sure that you'll say oh i call that this or i think about this like this and that's fine too but this is just a good review of the strategies that we'll be using when we talk about the second half of this show which is really uh digging deeper into semantics, syntax, and pragmatics. And again, if you haven't listened to show 408, as a parent, you may not know what those words mean. So go back and listen to that show so you are caught up. All right, so here's how we're going to proceed. We are going to look at these strategies, and if you have purchased the handout for continuing education credit, you'll see that here on page one. And we're just going to look at what these six strategies are and define them, and then we'll talk about why they're important. So uh, why parents and you as a therapist would want to use these strategies when you're working with a child. We'll talk about when they're most important, like at what uh, time in language development you can use these strategies for even uh, more effective or more effectively and then lastly we'll talk about how to do it I hate it when I go to a continuing education course or watch online like we all have for this last year and we don't ever get to the why or exactly how we do it so today I want to spend a lot of time with that and giving you lots and lots of examples so that you are able to use these strategies uh, with your own caseloads or if you're watching as a parent with your own child and let me just say too that this information in written form is in my newest treatment manual released in August of 2020. So it's the Autism Workbook, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD. So if you feel like, oh, this show is too much information, I, I can't remember all that. Even in the handout, I, I can't get all that. Go back and get the, the workbook. And you can find information for that uh, down in the post below if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your podcast app, you can get that at teachmetotalk.com. All right, so let's talk Talk about this first strategy and it is modeling modeling is our first strategy so what does modeling mean that means that you are going to say or do what you want the child to say or do and actually this is the chief cornerstone strategy that all of us as therapists use for a multitude of goals but especially when we're discussing expressive language we want children to be able to imitate the word that we've said and so how do we get them to imitate it we model it so we say what we want them to say so why does this work it's so efficient <laughs> when we get a kid to this point and he's able to really do immediate imitation, this is the most efficient way to teach a child how to learn words. And how do we know this? This is how all of us, whether we are typically developing or have some learning differences, this is how all of us learn to do everything. We watch somebody or we listen to somebody, so we take that information in, and then it's our turn to pop it back out. And so that's what a kid does when he's imitating. He's imitating what you've modeled. So when is this most effective? And again, this is one of those strategies that we say modeling is effective anytime that we want to teach someone how to do something else. But it's really, really important when we're teaching a child how to use words and how to learn, uh, learn to say words. So how do we do it? And really, I wish I had called this strategy, and I think I might change this by the time that it's released, 
model, modeling plus expectant waiting because expectant waiting is such an important part of this that sometimes we as therapists don't, uh, we aren't as deliberate or intentional about talking about this with parents as we should be. And we may be doing this and you know what expectant waiting is, right? It's when you model a word and then you sort of do that pregnant pause and we all do it with anticipatory uh, facial expressions and with anticipatory body language. We kind of lean forward and open our mouths like, it's your turn. Are you going to say it back to me? And so that's what we want to think about with expectant waiting as a part of modeling. And so that's just when we are going to say something that we want the child to imitate and then we need to shut up <laughs> and wait and give all that body language like we talked about. So let me just model that for you. And again, if you've listened to my other videos, I say this a lot, but it might seem really unnatural to you for me to talk like this to the camera and for you to uh, see this kind of exaggerated affect or this heightened affect and that's exactly what we want to do with kids because when things have been hard for a kid we've got to do everything we can to make it easier and provide that little more oomph to kind of get a kid there over whatever's that hump for him whatever's been so hard for him and we know that when kids aren't talking when we would expect them to by the the same ages the same milestones as their own little same age peers we know that we have to do something different and so a lot of times with this modeling I'll get comments or emails back and a parent will say I didn't realize I really had to be that on or that goofy or that whatever they call it and, and the truth is you do you do have to be that way to make a real difference because again if a kid were going to get it kind of the regular way it would have already happened and so we do have to do things differently and so when we're modeling and again, what I want to show you here is the modeling and expectant waiting. You would just simply have something, let's just say ball. And let's say you were talking to a kid about a ball. And let's say you were going to use that ball for a toy. And so you just, but his target word here is ball. So you, our, our points here, you've got to say the word that you want him to say. You've got to wait and then you've got to repeat to give him enough time to be able to process that word to take in what you've said to kind of link it to meaning in his own little mind and certainly he'll have some help there as you're holding uh, the visual representation or of what you're using meaning the real object uh, and then you're just going to again use repetition to help him uh, link that word and hopefully try to imitate it himself and so again we talked about back in show 407 about the steps to imitation we don't start with words and that's why I said that the strategies in this show may not be as effective for a child who's not imitating pretty well and you may have to back up and work on those skills first and then get here so by the time that we get here when we're talking about modeling words, we really do have an expectation that a child will try to imitate us because we walked him through that hierarchy of skills that you learned there in 407, show 407. So when we're here with this um, modeling plus expectant waiting, you know, we've got our, let's start over with our example. We've got our ball here. And so we want the kid to say ball. We're not going to get to the point where he has to say it before he gets it, but we can certainly hold the ball and keep it for a little while to make this more uh, relevant for him so that we know that he's including us in play he's not tuning us out as a lot of kids with autism have to really learn not to do it's kind of their their little default pattern with uh, not always we're going to talk about this in a minute that uh, there's a great quote the human voice does not always spark interest in children with autism and that's a quote that was uh, I had the reference in here but it, I heard it on it or saw it listed uh, with NPR and so you know 
what a shock that is to those of us who've done this for a long, long time, right? That kids with autism don't always listen or don't always pay attention or they're engrossed in what they are doing. And you have to really sometimes almost prime their little systems to get them ready to listen because otherwise, again, because of their sensory issues, they're just going to stay focused on what they're doing. And so we have to really, really think about that too with um, how we're using this strategy here. So heightened affect, anticipatory body language, and back to the example. That's where we were. So let's say that I'm just saying to a child, we're talking about the ball. What would I say? I'm just going to make sure that I say ball three or four times. I'm going to be more exciting to listen to than any, or, and exciting to watch than anything else that he might be distracted with. And then again, that uh, the repetition piece and the expectant waiting piece. So it would just be something like, ooh, ball. Look, see, it's a ball. Ooh, ball. You say it. Say ball. And so that kind of thing. Now, with kids with autism, we don't always want to model the word say with that why. Because lots of times they repeat what they've heard you say and with echolalia, so they repeat it verbatim. So you might be better just to not do as I do, but do as I say there and don't say say. Just model the word that you want them to do. But again, that heightened affect, that repetition of the keyword, and then the waiting and the looking like, are you going to say this too? So that's certainly uh, a big, big part of helping a child uh, learn to imitate a word using those points there. And again, one of the things I talk about in Autism Workbook a lot is motivators, and we'll get to this more as we start talking uh, talk about the other strategies, but you've always got to pick things that a kid likes when you're using some of these strategies so that he's, one, going to be interested in it, and two, that he has a reason to want to get what you have. And that's what communication is, right? It's using words or using messages to communicate your wants and needs to other people. And we can certainly do other things with that requesting uh, and that sort and asking. Those that's not the only communicative function that we want kids to do, but it's a good place to start because they're so so motivated by that. Again, and there's a reason for them to talk. So with modeling here, even though we're not really requiring them to say anything before they get it, there's still a reason for them to want to be engaged with you. And so you have to pick things that they want. Now, food items work really, really well, unless the kid is a picky eater, but usually junk food, snack items, anything with a movement kind of game so that he is asking for that next little turn or even a cool toy. So if we think about this through the context of the rest of these examples, you can see how picking something that a kid wants and is interested in is going to be a lot easier to teach him one, how to even understand the word <laughs> so that he's interested enough to learn it and make that association and connection in his little mind. And then secondly, to try to say it so that he can get it. But here at this modeling phase, our only goal here really is is for you as an adult to model the word in a way that will make it more likely that the child will imitate. And so certainly that heightened affect piece and that expectant waiting piece and then repetition will do all of that. All right, so that was modeling. When we talk about modeling, that's what we mean. We're just going to say what we want a child to say. So that was our first strategy, modeling. All right, the second strategy that we're going to do would be with choices. Now, certainly, 
You understand choices, and as a therapist, you understand the power of choices, and lots of times parents are doing this instinctively, but some parents haven't really thought of this. They're kind of sticking to a yes-no thing with kids, and so sometimes they'll get kids that primarily communicate by that head nod and head shake, and certainly our little friends with autism may not have mastered that kind of gesture, but they're certainly doing things like turning away or uh, lunging for something when they want it, when when really, really, if we could, if we get them to the point that they're imitating, using choices is going to be a more natural way to facilitate a child's uh, imitative words. And so again here, what do I mean by that? Well, he's still imitating what you've said. He's not having to come up with with that word on his own or generate that on his own and that happens that's why a lot of our little guys have difficulty when we're asking them what do you want tell me what you want to eat what is this say this you know that kind of thing without really the model i guess to say this wouldn't have been a good example there but just with the model they still need the model to be able to imitate what you've said but this just makes it a little more natural because there's another choice that they will not uh, choose there. And so what is modeling? Again, it's just offering a child, do you want this or that? A little less echoic, meaning they're not going to say the whole thing that you've said. And it's something that most parents, again, do all day long. So why do choices work? And so why would that be our next little strategy that would be our go-to choice past imitation? Because it gives a child, again, what we we're talking about, that communicative intent. It gives him a reason. He knows, oh, I've got to pick this. I've got to say this and with this point in uh, language development too when we are really digging down and really working on this expressive language piece we're not really going to take a, a, when a child reaches for something or a nonverbal answer unless of course your goal is still signing or using a picture system or a speech generating device whatever whatever your method of communication is is fine but we're primarily uh, in this podcast series and where we are now talking about expressive language we're talking about talking and so we do want to hold out and have a child try at least to say uh, the word and make the choice verbally with these choices. And so again, when we're using choices, when a kid is developmentally ready, now remember we said that he needs to be what? He needs to be imitating pretty consistently before we start a lot of choices. And a lot of times parents have offered choices and they'll say, Laura, that's not going to work because I've tried and tried and tried that. But I'll say, you know, you were doing that before we really taught him how to imitate as well as he is now. So now's really the time to get back in there and and this is how we're going to do it. And we talk a lot about the things that we talked about with the modeling. We want to model with a heightened affect. We still want to make it here. We can even do something better. And, and we did it with the when we're talking about modeling, like the example we used in the ball. We had a visual representation of what we wanted the child to choose. And so a lot of times parents are doing that too. They're saying, do you want milk or juice? And they're holding both those options up. Now, when a child is a little further along with language development, we don't always want to provide those visual cues. We want him just to do it from auditorily alone. Own. But right now, it's still a good idea, and it's certainly a way to help a child understand the choice-making process. Lots of our little guys with autism, especially when they're verbal, they get then they start repeating everything they hear. So we've I've said echolalia several times in the show already, but that really just means that they echo or they they repeat verbatim. They repeat exactly what they've heard. So if you say something like, "Do you want a cookie or a cracker?" What do they say? Cookie or cracker? They kind of say the whole thing. And that lets you know, gosh, they don't really understand this choice-making task in the first place. And so you can do some things visually where you're, you know, you want cookie 
or cracker and you're doing that whole making it so salient and so important so that the child understands how important or, or what you're talking about and it's just much more effective sometimes with the kid when you can give those uh, visual choices too. I love choices because they're the best way to dramatically increase the number of words that a child tries in a short amount of time. And if you have seen uh, my DVD, Teach Me to Talk, it's for free there on YouTube. So if you're watching on YouTube, you might wanna jot yourself a little note if you haven't watched that yet or listening uh, to the podcast, it is available now. Uh, for free for uh, anyone to view on YouTube and there's a section about choices and you can watch some of those sections where I'm just offering choice after choice after choice after choice and you don't start stop with just one choice like okay so let's do an example so that you this becomes really really relevant for you and I think this is the example that's in the autism workbook but let's say that we're going to offer a child a choice applying with let's say bubbles or Mr. Potato Head and we want him to pick Mr. Potato Head. Now, he may not be able to say Mr. Potato Head, but he says something that, you know, it might be huff or, you know, head or puff or potato or tato or however he says it. That's your first choice. You know, are we going to play Bubbles or Mr. Potato Head? And he picks that. And then, so then you don't just start opening the toy and start playing with it. You give him more choices. And I put all of my toys in giant two and a half gallon Ziploc bags so that kids can still see them and we've got that easy close but then I can still maintain control of that toy and until the kid really learns how to open it and, and he's going to need my help to do it and even though that's a pretty easy motor movement I can still usually get the bag and withhold the bag and keep control of the bag without a child getting it so I and it's a way to keep all your toys organized and as a parent you may have a different system or a therapist but it's always nice to kind of do that where you have a way to still keep those choices going and so then for that example with Mr. Potato Head, I might say, oh, okay, are we gonna, where are we going to play with the potato heads? You know, are we going to sit up like we're sitting at the table or, or will we sit down? And so your choices there would be up or down. And then once the child chooses where he wants to play, you say, great, am I going to uh, leave the bag closed or open? You know, and you want him to say open. And so, again, you really keep that going. What should we get out first, the head or the shoes? You know, and let him pick one of those. What, what comes next, eyes or teeth? you know and again you should say when you're holding the potato head are we going to put the whole you know or put the teeth here where do they go here or there and you're always giving that forced choice question now let me say something lots of children when they begin to really imitate like this will naturally imitate the last word that they've heard you say and that makes sense because that's what they've they're holding right there in their short-term memory and so to really you, you can use it. You can, the choice that you want a kid to uh, choose, and as a parent, you know this a lot. When you're offering foods or something, you say, I know he probably wants this, so this would be a lot easier. It'd be great if he, if he just would take this, and you're using choices. You can put the last choice, put what you want the child to choose as the last choice. But some kids, again, are just picking the last choice, and they, don't, they haven't really assigned meaning with what they're saying yet, so they're always going to say the last choice. And so then what you have to do is to be a little trickier <laughs> so that you put 
the first choice is probably the choice that he's going to choose so that he learns, oh, I've got to listen for both of these words and I've got to say the right word to get it. So you can certainly use those options either way. But choices are really, really important with kids. And again, like I said, a super, super way to bump up the number of words that a child can uh, say in a short amount of time. And, and that really, I use the word primed before, that really primes his little system and really gets him ready to talk and gets him used to talking and sometimes as a therapist you might notice this a parent will say afterward he was exhausted after therapy today I mean he was asleep before we left the parking lot or you'll notice that a child that you've really kind of pushed or if you're doing home visits uh, a parent might say to you you know boy he is worn out the rest of the day after speech I, I want you to come you know at this time so that he's going to sleep really good after that and so you certainly know how hard it is for those kids, again, to talk, but choices just really amp that up and just get children used to responding in that faster-paced way. And we know with lots of kids with their systems, they have to be so on like that so that they really can, uh, for lack of a better word, perform. And so certainly getting those uh, fast-paced choices are a way to uh, get that going. Uh, I talked about this before, but I want to mention it again. The main, Another main reason that choices are so effective is because they teach children, they give children the illusion of control, <laughs> or they teach them how powerful they are, that if they they can use words and use them effectively and efficiently just to accomplish things much easier than screaming for something or crying for something and it's much easier to tell mom what you want than for her to have to stand there and figure it out and so again choices really really get that going and and kids like that that uh, power and kids like to be able to make those choices and and you'll notice sometimes too with kids that that, uh, you know, until we can get them really, really involved like that, they, they don't really care too much about what you're doing. So it certainly is a way to increase participation as well. So we have to teach parents uh, to offer choices all day long and lots of times, again, to keep with a parent that this is not coming naturally for. As a therapist, you need to model that. And so you need to show them, you know, with, with a toy like a puzzle, how you can offer the puzzle pieces and, you know, keep those keep those words and those uh, vocalizations really going and it not just be such a silent solitude play routine where they're just saying one or two things and then you play for a while and then you put it up and then they get one or two things they say one or two more words for the next toy and then you play for a while and put it up don't do that really maximize your effectiveness uh, with choices and keep those choices going and, and sometimes uh, watch that or recommend that parents watch that section of teach me to talk so that they can uh, see how that should look or if you, and or you do that for them even over a teletherapy session you can really model that so that they can see how many choices that a child can make it is not unusual in a single play routine to get 25 or 30 word approximations just within a few minutes by uh, a skilled adult really offering those choices continually throughout that activity so i, I hope that that's uh, one that you're really able to use all right, the third strategy now that we're going to talk about would be carrier phrases or the close method. So what does that mean? That means that we begin a sentence and we want to let the child fill in the blank. So why is this important? So many kids with autism and also kids with other uh, speech issues like apraxia really almost need this in-between step, almost like it's a running start before their little brains and their little bodies are ready to fill in that word. So we can use this with children that we can see 
are having difficulty knowing what they were to choose and knowing what word, uh, again, that you are uh, not necessarily even giving them. Even if you're still giving them choices, sometimes kids do even better with this uh, carrier phrase or closed method. Uh, lots of times this is that in-between step that they need between choices and between coming up with the word to say on their own or spontaneously. So um, I like, I use it a lot for kids. I use it a lot for kids who love verbal routines so if you have a kid that loves when you say ready set and he's saying go or when you say one two and he fills in three this is going to be a great strategy for you to, you to use when he gets a little bit better at imitating and has uh, started to say at least some words spontaneously on his own uh, but this is a great great a technique to get going today with a lot of kids that you might not have tried that with. And so how do we do this? Well, here an adult says the entire phrase, kind of the lead up words, and then uses lots of body language that we talked about back with modeling and expectant waiting here to sort of get a kid going and get him ready. So mom might say something like she might even be holding what she thinks her child will ask for. Let's say that they're going to have muffins for breakfast. And so mom might have the muffin there and she might say, oh, Ben, I want you to tell me what you want. You say, I want a, and you want him to fill in muffin. And can you see again how that slowing it down and that anticipation can really set the stage for a lot of kids to fill in that word. So try that. You can also do that with uh, books with kids who aren't great labelers. They sort of, they've been good imitators, and again, you know that they know the word. They've imitated the word a lot, but you could use this when it, in, in place of what's that. If a kid can't always do that, you could do, I see the, and he says dog, or, and then go to the next picture, I see the baby. And so again, that might be a strategy that you might be able to use, and I've used it a lot with books, and again, when kids aren't great at answering those questions, that confrontational naming, that's something that makes it a lot easier. So that was our third strategy, carrier phrases are the close method. All right, so now let's move on to our fourth strategy, and this is the one where lots of parents start and lots of therapists start with withholding, but just like everything else, we kind of walk through this in a continuum, so we really start with modeling to get imitation going, and once imitation is going, we do choices, and then once kids are doing choices, we might bump up to this uh, what we just talked about, carrier phrases or the closed method, and then, then we're ready for withholding. So can you see how sometimes if we've never, ever even heard a kid say a word and we're trying to, you know, hold this cup there and say, you've got to tell me cup, you have to say cup, you're not getting this cup until you say it, you better tell me. And, you know, that's just too... Uh, mean. <laughs> it's mean, for lack of a better word, especially if you've never heard a child say that before. And so you can really just invoke a lot of power struggles with the kid just because you're using a great strategy, but you're just using it out of order. The child's just not there yet. And so we can't really uh, use withholding for words when a kid's not really imitating or not even trying to say some words spontaneously on his own. So let's talk about these rules. If you can master these rules for withholding, you're going to use this technique much more effectively. And if you're a therapist, if you have gone, if you have put yourself in that horrible position where you think I'm going to withhold until this kid says it or else, you get the or else nearly every time, right? <laughs> because kids just don't always respond to this. And again, it's because we as the adults 
aren't using it as effectively as we could. And so you might have had those experiences where you're just left with a kid just in a crying heap for 15 or 20 minutes in a session because you can't get him calm because he's over the edge because why? We put him there. And I'm not saying this to, you know, if you're a parent and you're hearing this and you think, gosh, that's why my kid's crying in therapy. His therapist is putting him there. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that sometimes we as the adults don't always use these strategies as effectively as we could because we're not considering the timing. And so with withholding, if we will adhere to these rules, it's going to be a lot easier and more fun and more effective for kids. So what's our first guideline? We withhold only for things that we know a child really, really wants. That was our motivation piece. And we talked about that back with modeling. It has to be worth it for a kid to try. And especially if you think you're going to withhold it and he has to say it before he gets it. A lot of times, if it's not, if the motivator is not exciting enough, if he doesn't like it, what's he going to do? He's just going to walk away or <laughs> tune you out or whatever his, his choice method of unpleasant responding is. That's what he'll do. And so we have to make sure that we are choosing things that are very, very motivating for him. Now, if you're working with a kid that you think, I don't know. I just, I can't find anything he likes. As a therapist, you've got to do some investigation then. You've got to talk to his parents. You've got to talk to his teachers and people that know him better than you so that you can get a good list of things to use that you can uh, know, gosh, these are going to be winners and you're not wasting your treatment time really, really looking for something that's going to work. And a lot of times with parents, you don't do this fast enough with therapists. You might, a therapist might be offering snacks to a child or a or a toy to a child, and you might say, he doesn't care a thing about that, but you offer him his favorite book, and he's going to try and try and try to say this for you. Or you offer him, you know, you're trying to use cookies. He's a salty snack kind of kid. You need some goldfish. And so make those suggestions so that you make it easier for your child. The more motivated he's going to be, uh, the better, the more, the more, again, the more on. He's going to want to try more. He's got a reason for that. Let me say something else here, though. A lot of times kids with autism have obsessions and fixations, and those are words directly from the diagnostic criteria. So I'm not uh, using a word that's derogatory in any way. It's certainly something that we see and that we notice uh, with kids with autism. But when they really, really, really are in love with something like Thomas the Train, that may not be your best bet here. You've got to pick things that they love, but not things that have kind of crossed over the line into obsession so that if they think that you are keeping that and not going to give them their most prized toy ever, you may get a lot of uh, negativity or, or a lot of heartbreak <laughs> from a little friend because he just doesn't understand what you're doing. And so try to really balance that. You've got to pick things that he loves, but not things that are going to push him over the edge. So we've talked about how important that motivation piece is. The next piece is, again, where we blow it. A lot of times we will withhold. We will try to keep an object until a kid requests it, and we've never, ever heard him say that word before. So the second rule for withholding is withhold only for objects and items that you know that a child can say. So if he's not imitated or made a choice, selected that as a choice, you know, when you've modeled it or you've given a choice or you've been doing some verbal routines or some uh, forced choice, uh, closed choice, or uh, closed methods, what I'm trying to say there. If you haven't been doing those, if you haven't heard him say the word in that context, it's very unlikely you're going to get it in withholding. And so that's why a lot of times parents will 
will say, you know, I've tried these kinds of things before and all it does is make him mad. It's because we did that too soon. We needed to wait until he was really imitating that word in a, in a context that's not this just so much pressure. And, and it is, and again, I know you might be thinking, gosh, she's talking out of both sides of her mouth there. She's saying he has to be really, really motivated to want it. Yes, but he also has to be able to say it too. And we never want to do anything that's an unrealistic goal for a kid because why we know he's going to fail and who likes to fail i mean i don't even like to see a kid sometimes in the assessment i just kind of want to stop even you know and i know that's kind of an unprofessional thing wait thing to say or think about it but i don't like to put kids under so much pressure or ask so many things that i know they can't do and sometimes the kid will surprise us and do it and yada 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 but a lot of times we know he can't do this and so i'm not going to do it and so same thing here with withholding if you know that he's never said a word before don't use that pick an easy easier target even if it's something he loves try to get him to say it without that pressure of having to say the word before he gets it so uh, let's look at some examples though with how do we even if it's a word that we haven't heard a kid say there might be some instances where we think well gosh i could try this for withholding so let's just use some examples let's say that you have been playing with a child and you've heard him just inadvertently even if he it's kind of an echolalic where he's made a choo-choo sound well you might know gosh i'm going to be able to turn that into requesting if i can if i can hear that more let's see what we'll do with the requesting here let's see if we can get that going i've heard that word and i think that might be a good target if we've heard a kid say something like bye bye it's two syllables it's the initial b and then a vowel we might try something like bubble you know can he do bubba for bubble and so we have some similarities with the construction of that word so we think gosh that might be a good target if he says mama all the time that's one of his words i try to elicit other words that start with m and so that certainly is something that is an slp you think about that's how we're trained but as other therapists early interventionist ot's or parents it's something you might not have thought about so i want to really want to really clarify that uh, you, a child has a pretty good chance of saying those target words based on what he can already say so that's certainly a factor uh, that you can use too and so uh, when you're withholding, let, let's go ahead and get to the next point here. Only withhold three to five times, and then what are you going to do? You have two choices. So three to five times. If a child says it, certainly going to give it to him right away. Praise him, even if it's just an attempt, even if it's just an approximation, even if you want him to say cup, and he says cup give it to him anyway at the very beginning when you're starting this don't go for perfection with children and 100 articulatory accuracy is never our goal with our little friends who are on the spectrum or any little late talker or a friend who has a language delay we want to just reward 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 their uh just the, any attempt that they're giving us at the beginning now you can gradually over time shape that and, and wait till it's a little closer but certainly in this earliest phase of language acquisition you want to be as reinforcing and as as just as easy as you can be about this so that you can really help a child learn how to get that requesting and that reciprocal uh, communication going where you're you're asking him to imitate and he's doing it and then you're responding with praise you really 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 want to get that going so um at the three to five times so as you've got the choices remember what i said if he says it you're going to give it to him but then what if he doesn't say it you're going to still keep modeling that that word you're going to really offer him where he has an opportunity to say it three to five times and then if he doesn't do it what do you do well 
You can give it to him anyway, which is what I do at the beginning because I want him to know, okay, she's not being mean. She really gets me. She loves me. <laughs> she she wants to be with me. She you know, all of those emotional uh, relationship aspects that we want a child to feel. And especially as a parent, you know, you are so in tune with that. And so you can give it anyway, which is what I like to do. Or if that's not your thing, if you think, boy, we've been doing it this way for a long time. And I, I just, I sort of feel like he's just knows he's going to get it anyway. And I, I would beg you not to think that. But if you do, and if you're one of those people and you need something, then go to a default word or even a sign. If you've had a kid who signed more or please or something generic like that for a long time, again, as some therapists, you may hate those words, but I like those words because it, it does kind of serve as a, when all else fails, I can back up and get this word or get even again go back a little a little further developmentally and let him sign or gesture for it just so that he still has to do something to get something but that's up to you i like to go ahead as i said when he's tried it or when i've off when i've modeled that word three to five times i don't want him on the floor in a fit because i wouldn't give it to him on time two because i didn't read his cues and so i'm going to go ahead and give that and, and if i have really worked a child up to the level of imitating and I know that he can imitate a word and he's just not imitating it now I know that something's missing there either something is wrong physically with him or sensory wise and we've got to get him more regulated or he's not really where I thought he was developmentally and I've got to back up again and think about that how can I make this easier how can we work on something that's just not as hard and so that default word or sign will really do that uh, for you too and so uh, think about those rules as you were withholding. You've got to just um, make it as, again, as pleasant as possible so that a child is going to want to stay with you and going to want to keep trying. And so uh, that three to five time thing. So let's practice real quick with like that example with the ball with withholding. I might say, oh, here's the ball. Here's the ball. You have to say it. Tell me ball. And then wait, you know, for him to say it in that expectant waiting. You know, that might have, I modeled ball three times there, but that was my first prompt. You know, I'm always trying to give him as much repetition as I can. Then he doesn't do it. You know, then I kind of start over and I say, oh, it's the ball. I know you want it. Say ball, ball. And again, you've done it again. And you can see how a child will stay with you through that. Sometimes they're just you know, just so engrossed with you. They're so engaged. They're just kind of looking at you. They're, they're not really ready to say it yet, but they're going to sit there through your whole times and just go through that three to five times like we talked about. But again, model that word as many times as you can. Don't just say ball number one. Oh, we didn't say it. Ball number two. We didn't say it. Ball number three. No, you've got to really talk about it there. And really, again, that expectant waiting part and pausing so that he has enough time to respond is going to be really, really important there too. All right, uh, that was that was what I wanted to say about withholding. Our last point here, though, is um, be playful as you're doing this, but still be insistent and still kind of find that balance of control there with you as the adult, with him really. Um, participating with you and keeping him with you and still getting some kind of result where you're not just always kind of giving it before you even try. So look back at that uh, information, the autism workbook, and see how you do with uh, offering withholding now that you know those rules. 
All right, the fifth strategy that we're going to talk about is sabotage. And sometimes when I say this, boy, this is where parents and other therapists who don't really understand this can really think that we're talking about being mean-spirited or we're talking about really, oh, I'm going to, you know, no, no. We're just talking about this light and fun opportunity for a child to initiate communication. Sometimes we call these communication temptations. And this is where we set up situations so that a child is really, really likely to use words on his own. And so sabotage is most effective when a child has imitated a word for a long time. He might have popped it out a few times, but you want it to become spontaneous and part of his established vocabulary, a word that he uses all the time. So sabotage is a way to really, really help a kid, again, get over that hump and be able to use that word on his own. So anytime we want a child to, uh, again, become more spontaneous, sabotage is what we need to think about. So what is sabotage? Again, this is just setting up a situation where a child is more likely to uh, request help or to to say that word without you giving him uh, the model of that word in the first place. So one thing that you might do that's so fun with this is just to give a child a part of what she needs to complete an activity. So if she likes playing with race cars on a racetrack, you might just put out the car, the the racetrack without the cars and see what happens. See how how she responds, you know, what's she going to do? How's she going to ask you for the cars? Does she notice that the cars aren't there? Does she look around like, where are the cars? Does she try to do something non-verbally, like take your hand and, and maybe put it over here on the bag where she can see the cars where it's about to open? Or or will if you're using this as an example, let's say that, and I think this is exa this example is in the autism workbook. Let's say that you've put something up high on a shelf that your child really wants as a communication temptation, as a sabotage to help him be able to uh, begin to initiate. And so he might start initiating by, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, just by looking at it. Or he might even take your hand and lead you over there and maybe even get a point so that you're knowing that he notices what's on the shelf and he, he wants it down. And so those are certainly when we shape those nonverbal behaviors too to the point where they are really using their words with that and you kind of walk him through this and he's he set this up and then then you might if he still can't come up with whatever that word is there to verbally request it you know after you've said tell me what do you want I don't know and maybe you've even offered some other silly choices you know when a kid is doing that I try to offer you know I might say glasses do you want my glasses or you know cup do you want my drink when you know they're they're saying no or they're telling me no and then they're you're again prompting them to say that word you might give the model you might say oh is it your your cars do you want your cars you know again he's imitating it there but you've given him a chance you've set that situation up for him to be able to pop out cars and if he can do it on his own that's fantastic if not you do need to back up a little bit given those those models so he can imitate but at the same time you're setting those situations up it's super super effective and i've got tons of examples of that in the autism workbook and in gosh nearly every therapy manual i've written i've talked about how effective using sabotage and communication temptations are so they're certainly a primary technique for us is SLPs when we want a child to begin to initiate or begin to use those words spontaneously. And so this certainly, again, is a, a technique that sometimes we use too soon in therapy when we haven't heard a kid say a word at all. We try to do that just so we prompted it, and that that's too soon. So go back and work on imitation, and then you're going to be uh, more effective with sabotage. Now, I think I might have called this the last strategy or the sixth strategy, and it's not. That was number five. So now let's move on and talk about the sixth strategy.
Okay, the sixth strategy we want to talk about is expansion. So what is expansion? Expansion is uh, just taking a word or whatever a kid said, adding something else to it to expand the utterance so that a child can bump up to that next language level. Now we really think about using expansion when a child is kind of stuck at that single word level and we want to help him bump up into phrases. So that's when it's most effective. And again, why is this important? It's, 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 important because when you use it correctly you're really helping a child build his vocabulary and certainly when we're talking about syntax in a minute or utterance length when we're looking at language forms we're helping him again not just be a single word user but bump up to short phrases this is the fastest way to get him there and it's even more effective when you pick another word that he can already say so let me give you some examples of this so uh, if a kid, let's use that car example. So if a kid is playing with a car and he just says car or, you, or you're holding the cars for the child to, to uh, request and he, he just says car, that's when you say want car and what you want him to do, you want him to imitate want car or I want car or more car or car please, just another word. And again, you're going to know him better. You're going to know, oh, what word can I pick with this? What's going to make it more likely that he'll imitate this phrase now? And so that's what expansion is. It's just expanding what a child says. And so use some, don't always get stuck in the same model, uh, the same pattern when you're modeling this. Sometimes I'll talk to parents about this and I'll say, I want you to add a word to what he says, repeat it back to him and see if we can start to get some imitated phrases here. And so a parent might say, okay, that's great. And then they go home and the only thing that they practice all week long is a color plus a noun. So if they were here with us, Instead of saying cup, they would they would try to uh, facilitate or try to elicit a child. They want him to say pink cup, or they want a child to say you know blue car or whatever it is. Without thinking, gosh, I should be adding a verb here. I should be adding a preposition or a location word here. So think about some other things too. Don't just get locked into one pattern. Uh, so as therapists, we need to talk to parents about that and give them some examples. Like, and there's a great example in Autism Workbook with expansion where if he says car to ask for a car, you would model want car. If he sees a car and labels the car, you might model there's car or there's the car. When he's making the car move, what, what could you say? You could say go car. Uh, but when he's playing with cars and, and you want to really try to, again, another fun thing to do here to get a two-word phrase is to use a preposition with it or a pronoun with it like my. And so you take the car and do my car and have a child, again, request it that way. So those are just some examples that have worked super, super well for me. And I want to be sure you as SLPs or parents watching can take those six strategies and use them anytime, anywhere. But let me move on and make this a little harder, increase our complexity a little bit here, and let's combine this with the information that we talked about last week. Remember last week we said with informal assessment of expressive language in autism, we were primarily gonna look at three different areas. And we said as speech language pathologists, we know how to do this in graduate school. They, they just train us this way and we think about it this way. And then sometimes we get out into the real world where we're working on teams with all kinds of other disciplines and other fields, and that is fantastic, but then we lose our way because we get so 
uh, involved with the team terminology and the educational models that we might forget this really important meaty information that we have as SLPs that we can bring to the table for these kids. And so that's looking again at uh, semantics, which is going to be vocabulary development here or language content. We're going to look at syntax, which is language form. And again, the two biggest parts that we're going to look at for kids in this earliest uh, language acquisition phase are going to be utterance length, helping them move from single words up to phrases, and then we're going to look at early grammar. And then lastly, that third part is pragmatics, and this is the language use piece, the communicative functions piece. And this is so important for kids with autism, and sometimes as SLPs, we just focus on that first part with semantics, which is fine, and that's really our starting point. And the next, we might focus on the syntax part, where we're bumping them up to that phrase level, and we hardly ever think about pragmatics, and that's where we might leave a kid sometimes, where he, get, he gets stuck with, you know, 300 words, and they're all nouns. All we can do is label. We haven't really thought about, oh my goodness, he should be using this word to answer a question or respond. He should be using this word... Uh, again, to request, which would be the most natural way to communicate. So think about pragmatics. I'm going to walk you through this here so you can be, again, as the most effective you can be from the get-go, especially when we're working with our little guys uh, with autism. So let's look at the first piece with semantics or vocabulary development. So our first thing is looking at not just the number of words. And we get locked in on that, even as parents, Gosh, the pediatrician sometimes does too because he'll say to a parent, how many words does he have? And a parent will say 45, and the pediatrician says, great, he's fine, without knowing that mom counted, you know, 25 of those words were on one day when a child sort of tried to imitate, if she counted to 25, he sort of tried to imitate that, so she counts all those, and then he might name some letters. And so can you see how numbers and letters, 45 different quote unquote words there? No functionality at all. He is not going to be able to communicate very much at all just with using uh, number words or letters, you know, for letters there. And so, or even colors or something. So you've got to really consider what words is he saying? What categories, what variety is in his vocabulary? And so we have to really look at vocabulary diversity. And so we talked about that last week. And if you have Autism Workbook, uh, expressive language is focus area seven in the Autism Workbook. And it starts on page 128. And I talked last week about using the fantastic assessment tools that were in uh, the autism workbook here beginning on page 140 where we're going to take a child's language sample and in the case of lots of times uh, parents are just doing this they're just keeping a word list and that's absolutely absolutely fine but you can write them down are is are these nouns are these verbs are these descriptors are these meaning adjectives and adverbs so descriptive words are these prepositions or location words in out on off up down Social function words like sorry and more and by and hi, those are social function words. And then pronouns like he and she and me and my and I and you. So you take your vocabulary list from a child, your word list, and you categorize them. You put them in these nice columns, and right away a lot of times parents will say, 
oh my goodness, he doesn't have any prepositions. I didn't even think of that. Or he doesn't know any pronouns. And so, or he'll, he knows two verbs. He knows go and eat. And that's a start. <laughs> but we want to get a lot more examples of those. And th that's what vocabulary development is, is about. And it's not just nouns. Now, nouns are a great place to start. And all new talkers, uh, the, the vast majority of their vocabulary is usually made up of words that are nouns. Now, sometimes we'll see... Differences, though, in that, again, with kids with autism, remember what we talked about, sometimes their vocabularies are just limited to words that are associated with they've learned through their obsessions and fixations. And so sometimes, like we talked about, you will have a kid that gets you know, only numbers or only colors or his only words are names of dinosaurs. Uh, and so you, you've got to look at that. But you'll see it when you analyze it that way. And again, it's a great visual to do with parents. If you are a therapist and you've worked with a child for a while and you're working on vocabulary development, but you, you're not making many inroads and you, you don't feel like parents really know where you're going with this, make a list with them. Spend your next session doing that. Even if it's a teletherapy session where you just say, you know, I want you to keep a word list this week and next time I see you, our next visit, we're going to go through this word list together and categorize them. That's a fantastic way to do it. So vocabulary development too will always be a very important part of any kid's therapy plan. I mean, that's, that's one of the things we're doing is working on increasing the number of words that they use. And honestly, with any one, two, three, or four-year-old, that's what we're doing. We're working on increasing their language. And so semantics will always be a focus, but make sure that you don't get lost with just thinking about word count. You've really got to look at that diversity there with that vocabulary. Now, let me say, you don't teach words expressively first. What do you teach first? First, you teach it receptively. Why? Because you've got to make sure that a kid understands the word before he can use that word. And so a lot of times we skip that part and we'll say, well, this kid is verbal with autism and he doesn't seem to know what the word means until he says it. I get it, but at the same time, you've got to know that he understands it. So how do we know he understands a word? We have him follow a direction with it or a command with it. We don't just assume it. We make sure that he really understands what that word means. And so we teach by doing, and we teach in context. So it's so easy, especially with kids with autism who love pictures and who love books or even who love apps, it's so easy to just want to kind of flip the flashcard. <laughs> you might not be doing it with a, a regular set of flashcards, but you're still kind of doing that way of treating it. Don't do that. And the main reason we don't do it is kids with autism sometimes really struggle, and kids with all language delays or disorders could, you know, this could be true of them too. They struggle to generalize what words mean. And so they may see a flashcard of a kid jumping and learn that that's jumping. And then you can jump right in front of them, but they really don't associate that what you are doing is the same thing that they labeled the picture. They haven't connected that. And so you've got to be so careful about using pictures with kids like this. And so how do you avoid it? You teach everything in real life. You teach it with a play routine or you teach it with a, a an everyday routine there. And so that's certainly something that I want to impress upon you. And I hope that as therapists, you are talking with your parents about that too, that we've got to teach by doing and not always over rely on uh, pictures for that. Okay, so that was um, what we were going to talk about with semantics here. Vocabulary development, we're looking at getting words from all different kinds of categories. We're going to teach receptively and we're going to teach by doing in context. So those were our uh, big strategies 
with our, our big focus is our big goals for semantics. So what do we do about strategies? Modeling is effective here. And remember, modeling works best when kids can already. I did expect it waiting for you. What were you supposed to say? When kids can imitate. So uh, imitation is just super important for everything, but certainly when we're working on vocabulary development, we want kids really, really imitating. So modeling is important. Certainly choices are applicable here. Carrier phrases, withholding, sabotage, all the strategies that we discussed are certainly relevant when we're talking about semantics. All right, so let's move up to the second big category that we talked about. This was syntax. So this is utterance length and early grammar. Uh, these were our big goals, our areas here and so for a kid to bump up before we can start to even think about oh syntax oh I want to get him bumped up to the phrase level there are actually some things developmentally that he should be doing first and this is what happens too when we try to bump a kid to phrases too early and we're not getting anywhere it's because he's not ready yet so let's look at what those skills are again there are three things you have to remember it seems like there are always three points but the first one is that a child has to have a large enough vocabulary and so with typically developing children, we know that they start to combine words on their own when they can say 35 to 50 words spontaneously. And then, like magic, the word combinations happen. Sometimes with our little guys with autism, it's just not that easy. They don't start it even when they have uh, enough words in their base vocabulary. So that's why we have to work on semantics like we talked about before. You can't really make a phrase or worry about syntax unless you have uh, words in your vocabulary from lots of different parts of speech. And so that is one of the underlying things. Before we can work on utterance length with syntax, we have to have a large enough uh, base vocabulary. The second prerequisite here is that kids have to be able to imitate a longer sequence of sounds and syllables. Why? Because you're going to have more than one syllable to get a phrase. Even if you have two one-syllable words, you know, uh, more milk, that's still, he's got to be able to sequence two uh, syllables there. Now, that's hard for lots of kids with autism. Why? Because those are the kids that also have apraxia or also have motor planning issues. And so that sequencing is really, really difficult for them. Remember last week we talked about over 60% of kids with autism have been found to also have apraxia. So it's, it, it's not just that they're not talking because of autism. They're also not talking because there's a speech part, the apraxia part, that's making this more difficult too. So when we have a kid that can't imitate those long phrases, we've got to look at, gosh, is this a length problem? Is this a sequencing problem? So what do we do? My best strategy here is just to get any kind of two-syllable word going before we're going to worry a lot about phrases. So things that are reduplicative, so like mama, night-night, dada, bye-bye, uh, any kind, nana for banana, any kind of repetitive two-syllable word, we want to get that in there first. Some kids, again, are going to need to take it even further so that you're going to have to practice just lots and lots of even the same syllable. So something like uh, where you're singing a song and you are just maybe playing a game with him when you rock back and forth. And so you're just going to sing rock, 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 rock. And even if he's just saying ah, 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 not getting that initial consonant or final consonant, he's still vocalizing uh, repetitive syllables, and that's going to help him with sequencing. So when you have a kid that's not doing phrases, think about that. Is his vocabulary large enough? Can he sequence a couple of syllables together? And then lastly, and this is a big one for kids with autism, can he join two ideas in play? 
It is really hard. At, well, let's just say it's impossible unless it's like a laylick and not meaningful. But for a kid to, to really spontaneously generate a phrase when he hasn't really learned how to do that nonverbally first. And so how do you know? It's how are kids combining toys during play? How are they combining objects during daily routines? Can he put the man in the tractor or put little animals in the tractor during play and then drive it to the barn? Is he joining those ideas? Until he can do that, he's not really ready to join uh, symbolically using words. So think about those prereqs when you're looking at uh, phrases. Another strategy for increasing phrases is expansion. That's our best strategy that we just talked about uh, back in the uh, parent strategy section. That's your number one go-to here. And as therapists, you're going to want to model, model, model that during sessions so parents really hear you and they're really imitating you when they are providing that model for their children later. Uh, I meant to say this before, and I, th I think I did. I'm not sure if I did, but let me just repeat it because it's so important. When we are trying to get to that phrase level, we want to combine words from a child's existing vocabulary because that's going to make it a lot easier. So if he's are, if you're trying to teach a phrase, pick words that he can already say. So, and those familiar routines are fantastic or familiar phrases like bye-bye dada, more milk, go night-night, words that kind of go together. For some kids, because they've already said it as single words, when you start modeling that and start using a lot of expansion, it's just going to fall right in. For other kids, we're going to have to break it down and make it even easier. Some kids, a technique called anchor words, where we just focus on, okay, I'm going to use this as my word and get the second word is going to be the only word they change. And so this might make it easier for some kids, especially with motor planning issues, because the, the just the complexity of that utterance, because they're only having to worry about one piece that's novel, it'll be easier. And so you might have a lot of uh, trucks and cars and motorcycles, things that go. And so that might be your thing, you know, go car, go bike, go boat, you know, as you're rolling it down a ramp or whatever you're doing. But your go is your anchor word there and you're adding another word. Some kids do better in uh, different positions. Some kids need the anchor word at the end of the phrase. And so experiment there and um, see what works best there as far as uh, your word placement. When all else fails with utterance length, you can try also holistic phrases. So these are going to be things like, I got it. Where'd it go? I did it. Things that kids are learning as one long word. Now, again, we know that's not really a phrase, but it does help them learn how to sequence and get those longer utterances going. And then we can back off a little bit and pull it back down and uh, combine some single words that they already use. But that holistic phrases, I kind of save that with kids with autism because especially if they've had echolalia, well, it's not the problem. Utterance length is not the problem then. They already know how to sequence. They already know how to how to get that there. Um, but holistic phrases, again, I try to hold back a little bit unless I know that that, that really is going to be my best strategy here. And then um, because I, d I don't want a kids to get really stuck there and for uh it's always good no matter what a kid says. You know, who cares? Who cares if he's doing 30 phrases? You know, I want that. But at the same time, I, I really want to, uh, again, keep language in perspective and help parents understand exactly what's going on there. All right. So if you want more strategies for helping kids move to phrases, I did a whole show about that. It was uh, ASHA Course 0400 or just our podcast number 400 if you want to watch that or listen to that because that really goes into more depth. And so if you have a kid that's at the single word level and you're just thinking, oh, what 
can I do? Listen to that show because that's uh, going to really review the things that I talked about in a lot more detail and you'll understand it a lot better. Now for syntax, uh, we're not going to have time to talk about all these really specific things, but you know what? The Autism Workbook <laughs> has those things outlined for you. And so with early grammar, the kinds of goals that we're looking at are plurals and possessives. Well, guess what, guys? You can't do a plural or a possessive unless you can add a final S. And so sometimes parents don't really think about that or even another kind of therapist might've thought, gosh, he, he doesn't have any final sounds yet. And they're still trying to work on it. And they think, well, I'm going to work on it and get it. It hardly works that way. It's just a little bit harder. So think about those real-life practical things when you're determining your goals. And think, oh, gosh, I might have to get an, I'm, I might have to teach an S first. Is he ready for our tick? Ugh, not yet. You know, and then you think, well, I'm just going to focus on teaching this, these concepts receptively until I get in there intelligibility-wise. So just a little kind of uh, outlier that you might want to think about with that. But Plurals, possessives are certainly going to be our goals here. Um, early verb forms, ing, is usually the first verb form to emerge. So think about how you can work that in when you are modeling. You're going to have to talk to parents about including lots of verb tenses and really highlighting those words and emphasizing those words. And just take a look at the Autism Workbook for some other tips and tricks for early grammar. And like I said last week, a lot of us as early interventionists hardly get to this point. And if we, as preschool therapists, you certainly do. But those of us who just focus on itty bitties, boy, it's because that's picky stuff when we're getting to grammar. So take a look at the Autism Workbook or Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual, uh, for some real specifics there. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about communicative functions or pragmatics. And remember what we said last week? There are 15 different communicative functions that children learn by the time they're 36 months old. And this is where our little guys with autism can just, uh, just struggle and struggle and struggle. So our 15 uh, functions are right there on your handout. So you can take a look at that. It's the second page of your handout there. And just start by thinking uh, what I do here is I take a child's word list and I look at what words he can use already in these categories because sometimes we're going to need to teach some things before they can get a new uh, language function. So something like asking a question. A child has to do what? He has to want information and then he also has to have that prosodic difference at the end like that rise. And so instead of saying cookie, he says what? Cookie? where he's, you know, raising his voice at the end of that word like it's a little question. They're like, can I have a cookie? And so sometimes we have to think about those little prerequisites. And that's what I, we as SLPs have to really dig in and think, oh, before he can do this, he really needs to be able to do this. And before he can do that, he's got to be able to do this. And so think about that as you're looking at these uh, as these communicative functions, sometimes we have to teach some words so that they can start to get that function. Uh, and then sometimes look at, like I said, taking their word list and thinking, oh, he can use this um, to perform this function, and we haven't tried this yet. So look at what those are. Talk with parents about what those are. And then I've got some really fantastic uh tips and strategies and ideas for how you can get these things going in autism workbook and if you already have that that's on page 150 and again i so apologize that we that i don't always have time to cram every little thing into every little show but that's not what this is about this is just to get you started with looking at expressive language development and autism and for so many 
of us in early intervention, that's where we really struggle. So we start at a level that's too high for a child. And then we wonder why we're not making any progress. It's, and we need to really, again, take a step back and think about what do I have to teach first and really come up with, with all the sequential steps. Now, a mom and dad in an IFSP or an IP are always going to have their goal is what? I want my child to communicate his wants and needs using this many words or phrases or whatever. But we as the professionals have to know, gosh, there's a whole lot of things that come before that. And it's our job to articulate those issues not, and, and what those prerequisites are, not only to parents, but other people that work with us, social uh, workers or uh, service coordinators, or certainly our other teachers, other therapists that are on the team. So we want to make sure that they understand that too. And it's not just about talking. Talking. You know, we, we said we want to really work on communicating. And so you talk about things like we've got to have vocabulary content. We've got to have a, a higher utterance length. We've got to have him using words for all different kinds of functions. There are 15 different functions that I want him to be using. And so take this information and really use it. And again, this will help your treatment plans become more comprehensive. This will help you be able to, again, look at communicating and communication and not just talking. All right. So that's all for today. I'm so happy that you joined me for this podcast. Again, you can get information about getting your CE credit there below the post. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on your podcast app, uh, go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and uh, uh, look at View ASHA courses. This is course number 409. And if you want to skip all that and just go straight to what you need, get yourself a copy of the Autism Workbook because it outlines all of this information and you can take it and own it and study it and uh, make it just the best for you that it can be. All right, that's really it this time. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast. Thank you.